Well, first of all, I, I would like to thank you for your invitation to participate in the year of your 100th anniversary. Thank you very much. I appreciate being invited. Uh, this is probably my favorite sanctuary, and I have uh, many memories. Uh, when I was a, a pastor in my first parish in Oldham, South Dakota, the TV ministry started. Um, we would occasionally watch it, although normally I was leading a service, so I didn't. But um, what uh, I remember then as a young pastor with black hair on all of my head and, and uh, a jump shot, I could actually get off the floor. Now uh, I came later uh, with gray hair, a gray mustache, and uh, can't jump at all. Uh, but there's a passage of time. I've been, I've been there for part of that hundred years, and I've always respected uh, uh, First Lutheran Church. It's great to see former colleagues and friends uh, and so many familiar faces. Uh, having uh, dinner with John last night, uh, my wife and I uh, have just uh, appreciated being here. What we have in the first and the last scripture read is our two um, powerful texts. One is really at the very beginning of the Bible story. It's like a mission statement. And it projects the, the grand vision of God that starts simply with a a single man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, but the intention is finally to go to the whole world. The other powerful text from John really comes to Jesus understanding how this fulfillment's going to take place, but meeting the misunderstanding of not only Nicodemus, but actually his disciples too. Nobody got Jesus, really until after the resurrection, and they began to understand. Uh, but what I'm struck by here is the, the driving purpose of God over the sweep of 2,000 years. First text, probably 2,000 years before Jesus. The next text, at the time of Jesus. And um, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to lift up two things about that in my message this morning. Um, one of it is that as this purpose of God is driving over history, um, sometimes it's even with, uh, in spite of us. But uh, what we come to understand is that the, the, the deeper purposes that God uh, wants to use, he likes to use us, but the deeper purposes are fundamentally a gift of God. They are not our human accomplishment. And you see this over and over. It's contained even in that first mission statement. The, reader, the deep readers of the, uh, leaders of the Bible get this. The second thing is that when God comes to the fulfillment, God does it in a very uh, off-putting way. And yet a way that has penetrated the hearts of people all over the world for the last 2,000 years not the way our civilized world would choose. And I'd like to get into that. It's a fierce love. 
But I'd like to start with uh, Genesis. And if you wouldn't mind, take out your Bibles and turn to page 10. I want your fingers to experience this, too, as you hold it. Because chapter 12 of Genesis, which is on page 10, it's when you actually turn and you, you feel it and you see it that you recognize that, hey, this is right at the beginning of the story. There's been the, a prelude, as so to speak, of the creation of the world and then some very, very ancient stories that really speak of how, how the human race has moved farther and farther and farther away from God and by doing that, it hasn't made a better world. It's made a world that has begun to uh, fight among itself, to divide, to kill, all kinds of stuff. You get to this point where you're saying, my goodness, what a mess. And then chapter 12 starts the story of God's intention. And I'd like to just read it. It's three verses, but uh, if you would follow along, because if you'll notice, there's a, there's a calling an invitation to um, Abraham to believe, to trust an outrageous call. Then there's a promise that goes with it, and then there's a statement of God's purpose. And this runs all the way through the Scriptures. Okay, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to a land I will show you. Simple, right? Go, leave, to a land. Anybody that would have looked at that said, are you crazy? This is the nomadic tribes. Your father's household, your people, your country, that's everything. And uh, that's your security. That's your future. And here Abraham is going to leave that when he's already gotten to that age of wisdom where you kind of have status in the society with his wife Sarah who is childless. What a risk they're taking. The only thing that I can figure out as I look back at this is that God revealed God's self in such a way and I would have to be a new way because the religion of that time was just lots of little idols and gods. It wasn't as we do it today. It must have been compelling. He must have been moved so that he absolutely believed it because he and Sarah do just that. Not because they're so righteous, but because he believes it and he will follow that. Then there's a promise that goes with it. And you'll notice how often the word bless comes and it also goes all the way through Genesis. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, i.e. protection. But notice the purpose, the grand purpose in the last sentence. And in your family and in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. We already have a phrase at the very beginning 
that ends up being said by Jesus 2,000 years later when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What also strikes me about this that I think is quite grand, uh, in the newspaper, it was a few months ago, they, somebody had actually sat down and uh, done a study on how accurate uh, futurists are about predicting the future. Uh, experts, a few years into the future. The embarrassing result was that the batting average is really low. And that's just for a few years. I'm kind of struck by the fact that this ancient text has a strength over time that is still unfolding today, and part of that today is First Lutheran Church as you anticipate your next hundred years into the unknown future. Then when you go to um, John, and we don't have the time to read it, but I just want to point out a few words that puzzled Nicodemus, and, I, and, and, and in so many ways this baptism has been a great example of what we're talking about. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you, that, the, that the Spirit, or what God gives us, can only be from above. That's where we even get that term, born again. God can give it. We can't manufacture it ourselves. And in our hyper-individualist culture where we say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, I just have my own spirituality, um, you just have to understand that the Christian tradition with all its prophets and its deep thinkers recognize we don't have the capacity. Here's how Jesus said it. Uh, you know the phrase, it is what it is? And it's kind of a nice phrase, actually. Uh, it kind of also means it isn't what it isn't, right? Jesus said, flesh is flesh. Flesh can't give birth to what is from above. Only the spirit can. And Jesus, so he, 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 in, he says, you know where the wind comes from? In, in antiquity, you didn't know where the wind came from. Uh, didn't have any concept of it, so they sometimes thought it was the breath of God. That's one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit and wind have the same word in the Scripture, because it comes from where we don't know. It must come from God. And Jesus was saying, the work of God comes in ways that we don't all know and don't understand. But... The intention of God is to bless. The second thing uh, I, I want to introduce by telling you about my granddaughter, Agnes. Agnes is the third of four children. Her younger sister is about as sweet as you get, and so is her oldest sister. Her brother is a little bit more like her, but even at the age of two, I remember a word coming to my mind that I've never used in connection with describing somebody. I heard my wife say it, and so I texted my uh, daughter-in-law and said, is Agnes fierce? And right away came the reply, absolutely. <laughs> you know how you sense things. Now, when you're a two-year-old and fierce, I mean, even when you're a nice, you gentle spirit and you're two, there are some times when it's pretty trying, right? 
when you're fierce, you, 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 you're, you're really dealing with something. But, but Agnes is that way. And sometimes she can sidle up to you and she's as peaceful as can be and she can spend the whole day drawing. She's five years old now. But there's a fierceness to her that if it gets channeled in the right way, you can bet that when she thinks something matters, she's going to fight for it. Sometimes when we speak of the love of God, in our society, we, we've kind of reduced God sometimes to kind of a mushy love that's not very defined. Yes, it's patient, which is good. It's gentle, which is good. But I don't know that we often talk about God as having, for us, a fierce love, a love that's willing to fight. But what Jesus now speaks of in his love, the love of God, and what he describes has to take a, an incredible combination of what it means to love, and I would think fierce is in there. Here's the deal. He says, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the desert, you have it on your banner. A, a very unusual story. You know, poisonous snakes are killing the rebellious people of God. They're dying and, and um, Moses gives them a sign that if they look at this bronze snake on a sign that he lifts up for all to see, they will be healed. It's a puzzling story, but Jesus draws from that in talking to Nicodemus when he says, just as the Son of Man had to be lifted up, and notice the word must. Jesus uses the word must. So must the Son of Man, be lifted up. Paul reflects that when he was telling others the Christian message, um, the Jews found the idea that the Messiah who died on a cross was a stumbling block, and the Gentiles, the Greeks, thought it was pure folly, and yet he recognized that as people would come to see it more deeply, it had the power of transformation. Back before World War I in Europe, when Europe was really full of itself, they were arrogant. It's interesting, sometimes your worst falls come when you don't think you have needs. There were theologians that were saying, we're so civilized, we shouldn't be using something as crude as the story of the cross for our salvation. And then they self-destructed in World War I and have never come back from the results. I think it's really interesting. I want to read to you something that just came out of the New York Times editorial by a guy named John Meacham, who's a very fine writer, a fine historian, and he's a Christian. He was musing on the difficulty that we now as a nation and as a people are in where we recognize, all of us, that the way we're acting does not lead to good things, but it's like we're caught in it. And people are wondering, what's the solution? What will draw us out? Uh, look at this, look at this uh, phrase, this, his last paragraph that John Meacham says. People of faith are called again and again and again to return to the foot of the cross. It's a terrifying place to stand. 
But that's where the story Christians profess begins. It's a story about love, not loathing. It's a story about generosity, not greed. In our time, the will to power has too often overwhelmed the words of Jesus. And that's why we must hear and heed these words of his anew. Here's what it it means to me if if I can explain it. I think people often puzzle. Why did Jesus have to die? And I find myself thinking, you know, maybe we as human beings, when we're at our worst, need to come to the foot of the cross on level ground and recognize that for us to be forgiven, it cost God. Because God's justice and his mercy come together. And it's almost as though we need to hear from Jesus on the cross to us, the sinner, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At any rate, it is when people come to the cross, realize it's level ground, realize we're common humanity with with common difficulty with sin, that we see in the cross a powerful love. I think it's a fierce love for us. And it is no accident, but it is strange if you think about it, that the universal symbol for the love of God around the world is none other than the means by which people were cruelly executed. Think about that. So yes, it ends up having to come from above. But what we can trust and join is this movement of God that has not yet completed in which that fierce love for us, because we matter, reaches out to us and invites us into the promise. Amen.